0: Isaiah 60, 6 zero. home stretch and some of the best is is still yet to come in this amazing book. If you need a Bible, wave it, bud. Someone asked me Sunday, I guess it was. Um or, or, or more pointed out to me, we haven't had a Wednesday night of prayer and worship. I th- I don't think yet this year in 2023, which is almost a third over. And don't get me started about that. Um, and and it's not for any reason. We kind of for a while now have been in in the habit and the custom of doing it more or less quarterly wasn't a conscious decision to not do it in first quarter. I, I, I think more than anything, it's just been, we've been really enjoying Isaiah. Um, maybe we will do one soon. Maybe we will have a night of prayer and worship on a night that isn't Wednesday. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't prayed about it. I haven't prayed about prayer. <laughs> Speaking of scheduling, though... Um, Grace Basil's celebration of life, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, Smith Mortuary in Hayesville. If you can't make it her obituary and and all of the things are are up on the Smith Mortuary website, you can leave a a remembrance, a note for the family and they will preserve that. I think they actually preserve it online and they also print it out in in a book. So just know that that's an option. But 10 o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to be officiating. Becky is going to be leading worship. And there will be a time for anybody who feels led to share uh, a memory or a verse or a, a, a prayer. There will be a, a time of sharing. And everyone is very, very welcome to attend. Isaiah 60. I promise. by the way, just just one more piece of housekeeping before we dive in. Um Last week, I, I, I said that we would devote some time to reviewing the, the chronology, the choreography, I guess you could call it, of Christ's return. What happens where and in what order, immediately before the return of Christ and, and as he returns and immediately afterwards. And I, I meant to say we will have that opportunity in, in coming weeks, because chapter 61, 62, 63, 64, um, it, it's just it's there. It's organic. It, we're gonna do it without even trying. I, it, some somebody said that I said that we were gonna do it this week, and I I, I must have misspoke, and I really apologize. This week would be a force. We would basically have to just dump out and do a topical study. Next week and then in, in subsequent weeks we can do it really organically in the context of of the study, which which was my goal. And I apologize if I misspoke. But chapter sixty actually looks past the return of Christ and and deals with, looks at, um, expands upon the millennial kingdom, the 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 millennial kingdom that's ruled by Christ. So. Isaiah is doing what Isaiah has done several times already in this book, which is skipping ahead and then circling back. We've seen him do that several times, right? The Holy Spirit kind of looks ahead and then backfills. And actually doing it that way, that flow, doesn't really seem that out of place when you think about where we left off last week. Last week, chapter 59, verse 20, the Redeemer... Jesus, will come to Zion, Israel, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, those, those who repent of Israel. Uh, the Redeemer will come to the believing remnant of Israel, says the Lord. God's Spirit, then, will be upon God's people in Israel and will never again depart. That's where we left off, and that sort of begs the question, gosh, what will that be like? Chapter 60, the Holy Spirit tells us, answers that question. It's almost like Paul is writing. Same Holy Spirit that inspired Paul, inspired Isaiah, so it works. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, speaking to future Israel. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The glory of the Lord we know in the Old Testament by another name, the Shekinah glory. God's presence, God's visible presence, which departed the temple, we read about that in the the book of Ezekiel during Old Testament days, will once again be visible in and among God's people. It's the first thing mentioned in the chapter, and it's among the most important, the most dramatic features of the millennial kingdom. God's visible presence. And what's fun is if you do some digging, God's visible presence, the Shekinah glory, is going to be everywhere you look in millennial Israel. During the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, following the tribulation, God's visible presence will be everywhere. What do you mean by everywhere, Patrick? Ezekiel 43 and 44, we see that the Shekinah glory returns to the temple. Zechariah 2, we see the Shekinah glory as a wall, like a a wall that looks like a wall of fire surrounding Jerusalem. Back in Isaiah 4, we saw the Shekinah glory hovering over Mount Zion. Isaiah 11 speaks of the the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus. And here in Isaiah 60, we read about the presence of, of the Lord again, but it doesn't even specify where. So what do we do with all of that when we aggregate all of that together? Is, is the Shekinah glory in all of those places distinctly? Up above and down below and all around? Or is the presence of the Lord so thick throughout Israel that it's evident, or, or at least so thick throughout Jerusalem, that it's evident, that it's obvious anywhere you look? I don't know that I'm sure. But it's there. Remember the song that Holland Davis wrote back in the 90s? Holland Davis, one of the the old guard Calvary guys, um, Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Big Daddy, we've covered it in the early 2000s. That's the fulfillment of that. We sing, let the glory of the Lord rise among us. We're not really expecting to see the visible Shekinah glory here in this sanctuary. But one day in Jerusalem, they will. Verse 2, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. That's a reference to the tribulation. Deep darkness is is a characteristic of the tribulation. It's a way that the the prophets speak of it. Look at Joel, look at Zephaniah especially, again and again in, in just three short chapters in Zephaniah. Darkness and thick darkness and clouds and gloomy darkness. But at the end of the tribulation, the darkness ends. The Lord, still verse 2, will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. Because Jesus returns. Jesus, who is light, brings light and drives out darkness, casts it out, banishes it. Verse 3, when he does, the Gentiles, not just the believing remnant of Israel, but the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, the light of Christ and the Shekinah glory that accompanies the return of Christ both drives out darkness and draws in the Gentiles, which is something we've seen before in Isaiah, right? In the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem is the center of the world in every sense, politically, economically, spiritually, obviously the capital of the world, the pivot point. And we say, yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus returns. Glad you caught up, Israel. Should have gotten in on it the first time, when he first came. But that's the point, isn't it? Pause and realize what's happening. A people despised and forsaken by God are now indwelt, And illuminated by God, which by the way is our story too. Verse 3, the believing remnant of Israel calls upon the name of the Lord. Jesus returns and Gentiles begin pouring in to Israel, drawn by the light of the Lord. The Shekinah glory in and around and upon Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Now the the question with verse 4, is that describing two different things, or is that one big thing? Because we can read it both ways. They all gather could mean the Gentiles are gathering, which would be a continuation of verse 3. But the second half of the verse is clearly the Jews, the sons and daughters, wanting to return, wanting to to repatriate Israel. Today there are more Jews living in New Jersey. This is true. More Jews in Brooklyn than there are in Israel. So from all over the world, the Jewish people will want to return. The question is, does does verse 4 say, hey, the Gentiles return, and oh, by the way, the Jews return too? Or... Another way to read it is the Gentiles are helping the Jewish people return. And I think that that might be likely, because if we keep going in verse 5, Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Now we know that sea not always, but often in scripture, speaks of the nations. Jesus used the word sea that way. But we don't even have to guess because another line, you know, just skip a line and it talks about the wealth of the nations. So verse five is all about money, wealth flowing in to Israel and the Jewish people flowing in to Israel. It's not a stretch to think that those things are associated. That The Gentile world is helping fund the repatriation of Israel by God's people. Verse 6, The multitude of camels should cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, descendants of Abraham, not through Sarah, but through his next wife, Keturah. What's the significance? I'm not sure here, other than describing a diversity of people groups that are going to accompany the return of the Jews. So it's not just going to be uh, the, the Jews, it's not just going to be the Gentiles from faraway places, it's going to be people from the Middle East, who have been for centuries the enemies of Israel, are going to be drawn to Jerusalem. I think what's even more interesting, though, in verse 6, and what's even clearer, they shall bring golden incense. What what does that remind us of? Reminds us of of the, 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 the Magi bringing gifts to not baby Jesus, but toddler Jesus, two year old Jesus. They brought gold, frankincense. What else did they bring? Why don't they bring myrrh here? It's a burial spice. Myrrh spoke of Jesus in his first coming. Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Gold speaks of him as king. Incense speaks of his role as priest. His role of prophet is fulfilled. No need to bring the myrrh. No need to speak of his burial. He's risen. He's not here. Verse 7. All the flocks of Cater shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaith shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I'll glorify the house of my glory. Cater Nebaith, us, our sons of Ishmael. So again, the diversity here. Arabs are returning. Probably Arab Muslims are curious what's happening in Jerusalem. It gets even more interesting because the Nabataeans... As, as the descendants of Nabeath are known today, inhabit an area that historically was called Basra, today is called Petra. And we're going to talk more about what happens in Petra in Isaiah 63. Verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Okay, that's just weird. And almost every commentator I looked at in the last few weeks has said, yeah, verse 8's weird. Because modern-day commentators look at that, and especially prophecy buffs, and say, is that airplanes? Prophecy buffs like to look at prophetic scripture, especially in Revelation. Ooh, are those helicopters? Are those flamethrowers? Are those armored personnel carriers? And, And there are some verses that could very well point at those kinds of things that an ancient mind like John writing Revelation, Isaiah, writing, writing this book, couldn't process. So, so he's asking, what is this flying in the air? Is, is this an airlift bringing people back to Israel, back to Jerusalem? It could be. Here's another possibility. You can flip over to Matthew with me or, or just listen. We're going to be there for just a verse. After the tribulation, Matthew 24, 29, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will, Matthew 24, 31, send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Is it angels gathering people? I don't know. I don't think we need to know. We know that there's a huge influx of people to Israel. And, and maybe we take these things together with, with verse 9. Surely the coastline shall wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. There's silver and gold with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he's glorified you." If, if we take those three verses together, 7, 8, and 9, do we have sea, land, and air? Different means of return. Details a little mysterious, getting a little cryptic here. The bottom line is clear, though. People of, of, of every heritage are streaming to Israel through every means possible, and they're bringing money with them. They're bringing an offering, an unprecedented offering, to the Holy One of Israel. What will all of the funds be used for? Verse ten: The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my mercy I've had uh, in my favor I've had mercy on you. They're doing a big repair project because Jerusalem is decimated at the end of the tribulation. Could God do that work miraculously? Of course he could. But apparently then, just like now, God allows people the privilege of being used to accomplish his plans and purposes. That's that's the norm in our day, right? God accomplishes his supernatural purposes, usually Not always and exclusively, but most commonly, he accomplishes his supernatural designs and purposes through natural means and methods. Because when we participate, we worship. Connect back to Romans 12. Verse 11, Therefore your gates shall be opened continually, they shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. Now that's the initial response, and and we can imagine as the army of Antichrist falls, as Jesus returns, as he establishes his kingdom, that's going to be the natural response. Think about the outpouring of wealth and resources in the wake of a natural disaster. How How much funds Get, go go flooding to to a, a, an area hit by a hurricane or or an earthquake or a terrorist incident. How much more so will will the resources of the world go flooding to Jerusalem f- following the fall of Antichrist's empire? But not just as a, as a one-time surge. One of the things. Um, you know, those of you who have participated in disaster relief, you're sensitive to the fact that there's an initial outpouring, and then there's there's a wane. Something replaces it in the news cycle. Another cause comes to the forefront. We have short memories, um, and 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 so many people who who are called to disaster relief actually sit back and and let other people let that initial surge happen, knowing that the real need tends to happen three months, six months after that that initial surge. Well, whether by design or whether by the you know divine decree, the same thing happens in the millennial kingdom. Flip over to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, at the end of the chapter, this is the plague, verse 12, that the Lord will strike against all the people who fought against Jerusalem. So that's part of the second coming, that's part of the defeat of Antichrist's army. Verse 13, a great panic. Verse 14, Judah will fight, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance skip down to verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's going to be an annual thing, at least, not just an initial outpouring. Now this this is interesting because this is what Peter was thinking was happening at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter sees glorified Jesus along with Moses and Elijah, and Peter has a bright idea, hey, I'm going to start building booths. And that seems weird to our New Testament ears, but Peter was sensitive that this was something that would happen in the Millennial Kingdom. He sees glorified Jesus, he jumps to the conclusion, oh, well, this this must be the kingdom because I'm seeing the glorified Lord, and here's Moses and Elijah. So, I don't know everything to do, but I know we're supposed to build tabernacles. So, and, and isn't it interesting, by the way, Peter was a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. He'd been following the Lord for 18 months at this point, maybe just under two years. But he had the sensitivity, he had that, that awareness of, of, of Scripture to put two and two together. His math was a little wrong, but how many of us would have had that same insight? This is it I go back to you know people who want to be used of God, people who want to uh, serve the Lord and be be used of God. Man, learn the Bible um, and, and, and be sensitive to the, the things that the, the Lord has stored here, placed here for our understanding. Still, still Zechariah. It shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts on them, there will be no rain. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt will not come and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is he singling out Egypt? Because the Feast of Tabernacles was originally intended to commemorate the exodus of God's people from Egypt. But with that in mind, flip back to Isaiah 60. Verse 12 is where we left off. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. So some parallelism there. Isaiah saying with more words and with greater detail what Zechariah says just by way of summary. But that kind of blows our mind, doesn't it? Who's not going to serve the Lord when He's there, when Jesus is bodily, physically in Jerusalem, when the Shine Kind of Glory is surrounding Jerusalem and hovering over Jerusalem? Who's not going to serve the Lord? Who's going to deny Jesus worship? Answer Israel denied Jesus worship the last time He was bodily present, physically present. And the Pharisees said, well, give us another miracle and then maybe we'll believe. And Jesus said, no, you won't. Because signs and wonders only go so far for people who have, who have hardened their hearts against the truth. So Jesus says, you only get one more miracle. That's going to be the resurrection and most of you aren't going to believe that either. Jesus knew it wouldn't make a difference. Why? We have a sin nature. Wait. But I thought it was just believers in the millennial kingdom. At the beginning, it is. The millennial kingdom, at its inception, at its onset, is populated entirely by believers. But those believers have kids. And those kids have a sin nature. And those kids have free will to choose or reject Jesus, just as we do. So in the millennial kingdom, is as hard as it is to comprehend, there will be resistance, there will be rebellion, there will be factions that oppose God, just like there are in the world today. Verse 13, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I'll make the place of my feet glorious the place of my feet, the temple. This is a picture of of reconstruction, remodeling, rededication, further beautification of the temple because we know it's desecrated in the middle of the tribulation, right? And again, Gentiles are helping. The sons of those who afflicted you, that's Gentiles, shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now this gets controversial. This sounds a little problematic because at first glance it sounds like the Gentiles are bowing down before the Jewish people. It almost sounds like the Gentiles are worshiping the Jewish people. Problem. People aren't supposed to receive worship, are they? The apostles didn't accept worship. Peter, John, Paul, they said, don't do that. Angels don't don't allow themselves to be worshipped, don't accept worship. So how would it make sense for the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom to accept worship? You can find Zionist commentators who say, why wouldn't they? This is reparation for centuries of oppression. It doesn't work. I can, I can see how they get there, except no, it's not biblical. Read it again. Look at verse 14 once more. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. Who's you? Keep going. They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Who are they bowing down before? Jerusalem. Okay, that seems weird too. They're worshiping a city except what did we say back in verse one was was characterizing the city the shekinah glory around it above it throughout it that's who they're worshiping the first verse unlocks it and with that understanding the rest of the chapter makes a lot more sense Verse 15, "...whereas you've been forsaken and hated Jerusalem so that no one went through you, I'll make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron." I'll also make your officers' peace and your magistrates' righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, nor wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. God is restoring the city. Excuse me. (coughs) The city that is a dwelling place of the Shekinah glory that makes a lot more sense. But just when we think we've got it figured out, the Holy Spirit throws us a curveball now. Verse 19, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. Now what does that sound like? Sounds like the new Jerusalem, doesn't it? Revelation 21, time's getting away from us, so I'm going to go quickly here. John sees a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no more sea. Skip down to verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine, in, for the glory of the Lord illuminated it. The Lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the king of the earth bring their glory and honor into it, their gates shall not be shut at all by day. And it's based on that parallelism that lots and lots of commentators think the whole chapter we've been reading in Isaiah 60 is about the new Jerusalem. A lot of them have to interpret it that way, because if you decide that God is done with Israel, and that there's no repentance for the Jewish people, you kind of have to skip right to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. The problem is the interpretation doesn't hold up. And I'll show you why. Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem but verse after verse in the prophets speak of the millennial temple. Isaiah 60, verse 13 is just one of many. And there are are other problems as well, but that's enough to say, okay, it's similar, but it can't be the same. So back in Isaiah 60, what do we do with verses 19 and 20? I don't know, read them at face value, maybe. The Shekinah glory is, is brighter than the light of the sun and the moon during the millennial kingdom. You can read it poetically. You can say, well, the children of Israel didn't navigate by the sun during the exodus. It was cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and the Lord will be their guide. You can, you can try to read it poetically, or you, or you can say, "God will, this, is just, this is just a poetic way of saying that God has brought an end to Israel's darkness forever. I don't know. when the plain sense, makes sense, seek other, no other sense. I think the chapter begins with the glory of the Lord shining. Why not read it that way? Let's wrap things up. Also, your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. We're familiar with the millennial kingdom being a time of peace, being a time of prosperity. The curse largely undone, bountiful harvest, fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness and fertility apparently extends to the population of Israel. Is this just an influx of people? It doesn't read that way, does it? It, it sounds like it sounds like people are having lots of kids, and there's a population explosion. There's a baby boom going on, and that and 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 God is pleased with that because God, who is in the midst, is all the more glorified. I was driving a, a, a well-known theologian to the airport after after a speaking engagement once upon a time when I was a pastoral intern. He said, "Well, tell me about your family." And I said, "Well." I, I'm married and I have a daughter. He said, just one. And I said, Yeah, just just one. He said, Well, that doesn't glorify the Lord. You know, and he I didn't I didn't understand his reference at the time, but he was obliquely referencing this passage and saying, you know, we have to have many children. Christians have to have many children because that way the Lord gets that much more glory. Okay. I don't know that that's necessarily the application of the passage. I I read the passage, and of course there's many applications, right? One one interpretation, many applications. I read the passage, and I'm struck by the diversity. I I don't know everything to make of verses 6 and 7, but the Holy Spirit seems to be saying people are going to be coming from near. Israel's most, most hated neighbors are gonna be drawn to Jerusalem. People are gonna be coming from far away. Tarshish Tarshish has, has seems to have different meanings in different places of Scripture. Some places it really seems like it refers to Spain. Other times you really want it to refer to England by extension. Could it refer to England's colonies? Could it refer to us? Maybe. But in any case, we see we see the Middle East, we see Africa, we see Europe. All drawn to to Jerusalem, and and I just sit back and I and I think about how provincial we get sometimes, how how U.S. centric, America centric we are, even in our in our prayers. I'll catch myself sometime. God, bring revival to our land. And I mean, and, and and that's an okay prayer. We get to pray for ourselves. Jesus Jesus taught us to pray. Give us. This day, our daily bread. We can pray for ourselves. That's not sacrilegious. That's not sinful. But I don't think that that's all that we, well, it's not all we get to pray for, and I don't think it's all that we should pray for. The privilege of intercessory prayer is, is one that, that most of us barely, barely begin to scratch the surface of. We get to pray for people, not us. That's Love. We get to pray for others. We get to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In fact, Scripture says we're supposed to. And in praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for future Jerusalem. We're praying for this Jerusalem, millennial Jerusalem, because it's the first time in the history of forever that Jerusalem will know peace. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying that the Prince of Peace returns to Jerusalem. And how diverse is it? How how incredibly rich is, is the kingdom of God. So if we take my favorite principle, my Wednesday night hermeneutic, if we look at the things that will be true in the kingdom physically and we ask, how can we make them true? How does God want them to be true in our lives today spiritually when the kingdom of God is in us? We gotta remember it's a big church even today it 's a big kingdom it 's a diverse kingdom We were talking um, today in the office jesus revolution the the film about the the early days of Calvary Chapel is now available for streaming and you know a b- bunch of us went to to watch it in the theaters. Should we stream it here in the church and, and, and i mean it 's exciting to, to to look back at the revival that God brought and, and the way that Calvary was in the middle of it. But not all churches today, not all churches in church history, not all churches between now and the rapture are going to have doves hanging on the wall. We don't have a monopoly on on worship. We don't have a monopoly on on. Exegesis. We don't have a monopoly on love. I've told the story before. A friend of mine is planning a church in Brooklyn and was, was attending a, a, a consortium of church planners put on by, by Redeemer Presbyterian, pastored by, by uh, Tim Keller. Some of you have read some of his books, Prodigal God and, and so forth. He went there with a certain amount of trepidation because he's a Calvary guy, and Tim Keller's a Presbyterian and he, he walked in and the very first session of the very first you know thing somebody stood up and said okay i want to i want to i want to talk about the elephant under the table some of you are concerned that we're going to try to turn you into good presbyterians we're going to try to make you five point calvinists and cessationists and preterists and and everything he said no he, he said i'm not even presbyterian and i'm 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 the speaker today i think he was four square and someone else was Lutheran, and someone else was this, and someone else was that. And, and the point that he made, um, as my friend related the story, is really stuck with me. He said, New York is the most diverse city in the world, and it takes a diversity of churches to reach that diversity of, of populace. And, and we need to, I, I'm not preaching ecumenicalism, I, I'm not saying water down the truth for, for the sake of unity. But we have to realize God's got plans way beyond our four walls, and he has things in motion way beyond Calvary Chapel. And I think the worst thing we could do is try to homogenize the body of Christ. Do it our way. Be like us. We're the right way. We're the best church. Even within Calvary, you know, we're we're at the 50-55 year mark since Calvary began, and that's when most church movements become machines, become monuments, become mausoleums. Because they try to they try to codify, they try to reduce to policies and procedures what was a divine sovereign move of God, the Holy Spirit. Well, Chuck said this, and Calvary always did this, and what Rooms that I was in, Chuck, said, seek God, wait on God, hear from God, and then obey God. <laughs> Whether it's what anybody else is doing or not. And, and we, might, we might end up looking different than other Calvaries, and other than other churches. That's okay. People, people go to Jerusalem by land and sea and air. They come from near, they come from far. Jews and Gentiles. But they're all there for one thing. They're there for Jesus. They're there for the real Jesus, they're therefore the Jesus of His Word. They're there to worship the resurrected Christ. Are we being faithful to come before Him in the way that He's called us, while realizing that other people might have a different role to play in this kingdom? I don't. Even, I don't know about you, but just. Hearing what God wants for me is a full-time job without without looking around and getting concerned about whether other people are doing it right. It's a big kingdom. Let's 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 be obedient to what he's called us to do is, is what I take away. Lord, thank you that I can be me and I can take that away, and fifty people listening in the room and online can each have their own takeaway. Because you're God who speaks to hearts. You're God who loves each of us individually, personally, uniquely. And and man, we get to respect that. We get to to see that we have different gifting, different calling, different ministries. And yet, unified in your love, unified in your name, unified in your blood, unified with our, our love for your word, Our devotion to the lost. Our commitment to worship. Lord, would you lead and guide? Would you show us the things that you have for us to do? The good works that you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While other people are walking in their things. And giving you praise and glory. Because you are so, so worthy.